I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I think it's going to be projected. If you all could follow along, and then we'll just get right into it. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not, merely, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Can we pray one more time together? Father, we thank you so much for gathering us here this um, late afternoon. Uh, we're here to worship you with um, not only our lips and um, our voices, but with our minds, with our hearts, with our entire being. So we ask that you would um, plant your truth deep in us so that we might be shaped and formed into your likeness. Um, Lord, grant us humility and remind us from the get-go that you are far more concerned with um, our holiness, making us more like Christ Jesus than you are with our um, fleeting happiness. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here today be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have three points, uh, three observations, however way you want to receive them, that I hope will help us better understand this text and get us to the place when we can respond to God in faith uh, with a deeper love for Him and one another. And these are the three points. Paul didn't fear confrontation. The problem wasn't identity, but maturity. And three, the solution is unity, not uniformity in the gospel. Point one, Paul didn't fear confrontation. Um, before we just kind of get into the nitty-gritty of the text, uh, I want to give a little more background on what Corinth was all about. Um, the city of Corinth was a Greek city, but it was under Roman rule, the empire rule at this time, um, the first century. It was a cosmopolitan, happening, sexy place. It was much like New York City, so I think there are a lot of parallels that we can draw. Um, it wasn't like the greatest city in the world, like New York is, but it was perhaps the number three. It was Rome, Alexandria, and then Corinth. Um, and, and the remarkable thing about the city was that it was destroyed about a century and a half before this letter by Paul was penned. It was destroyed, it was sacked, it was razed, and then it was rebuilt by the emperor at that time, Julius Caesar. And it was located in such a strategic place that it served as a port for trade and commerce. So you had Europeans, you had Africans, you had Asians flocking to Corinth, and so the place blew up. It became, you know, gentrified. It became, you know, a very prominent, wealthy city that hosted the very popular and well-known, it's hard word to say, Isthmian games, which were second 
to the Olympic Games, right, that were hosted in Olympus. Um, well, as is the case with most major, if not all, metropolises, uh, not only was there great wealth, um, an abundance of, you know, resources and progress, there was also um, excess. There was, um, you know, a wastefulness and, of course, great poverty. Um, the convergence of all these things um, brought, again, wonderful ideas, uh, culture and arts, uh, trend-setting type stuff, but with these things um, came societal ills, came the maladies that we see in, even in our society, problems like human trafficking and, and prostitution and, and, and poverty, need, right? And uh, added to all this, uh, of course, I've already mentioned it, the, Corinth, for whatever reason, it became a hotbed of sexual deviance, sexual immorality. In terms of religion, it was extremely pluralistic. Again, you had people from coming from three different kind of worlds, three different continents, and so there was uh, Roman and Greek pagan god worship, there was uh, emperor worship, and uh, there was also a syncretism that developed when you put all those different religions together and people just start making different strains of these different religions, and that's what Corinth was about. And if I had to kind of um, um, analogize it with any, any city that, that we see in the United States, for instance, um, I couldn't really come up with one. I came up with three. Corinth was, was kind of like LA, Las Vegas, and Amsterdam put into one city, really. It was a newer city. It was a sexy city. There was a lot of, you know, like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth type of, you know, stuff going on. Um, but, but again, there was beauty, wealth, and wonder, but there's also brokenness. And thanks be to God, as we're getting into this text, we see that there was this church. There was a city on this Corinthian hill that was established by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul about four to five years before the, the writing of this letter. He wasn't the only one. He had a team of co-leaders and brothers and sisters who, you know, planted that church. Timothy was with him. Silas was with him. And it was during his second missionary journey that we learn that he was just doing the work of an evangelist. He was preaching the gospel at the, the pagan temple courts, and people were getting saved. He was there for two to three years, and as he hears, as, as he's doing God's ministry, people are getting saved, and he's discipling them up and raising them up to become leaders and mature uh, followers of Christ. But after he did this, he left for Ephesus to, do, to engage in ministry work in a different locale, and it's, it's when he's in Ephesus that he gets reports from Chloe's people, is what the Word of God reveals to us. These reports were not good news. They were reports of a church that was um, embroiled in um, division, strife, um, rampant immorality. What happened to this church that the great Apostle Paul planted? I mean, no church that Paul planted could ever go wrong, right, or close down. No, that's far from the truth. In a nutshell, this church became more influenced by the world than it did have influence on the world. It became more syncretized to the world. It became more infused with philosophies and ideas and the practices of the surrounding culture than it did influence and witness of the love of Jesus 
and his gospel of grace to that world. So what does Paul do? According to our text, he did what I did to you <laughs> when we started off the message. He called them out. He confronted them. He said, you're all, most of you, are acting like babies, and you need to grow up. You need to grow up. Paul didn't fear confrontation. He didn't shy away from pointing out their worldliness and their immature thinking and behavior, and he goes right into admonishing them and even rebuking them very directly and even severely. He does this at the outset of, you know, this is chapter 3, but it's still early on in this letter, which is comprised of 16 chapters. But he, does, he, he doesn't just do it for effect like I did. He knows these Corinthian Christians. He knows the leaders, most of them. And his words are rooted in truth. And um, I'm, this is not my opinion. This is what all the commentators believe to be true, that Paul was severely scathing in his rebuke of this church. Listen to Gordon Fee, perhaps one of the pre preeminent Corinthian scholars. He says, the language and style of one Corinthians are especially rhetorical and combative. Paul is taking them on at every turn. There is little to suggest that he is either informing or merely correcting. Instead, listen to this, he is attacking and challenging with all the weapons in his literary arsenal. In the first three verses, he flat out states that he could not address them as spiritual people, but he called them, referred to them as people of the flesh. This is hyperbole because they weren't people of the flesh, most of them. They were in Christ, but people of the flesh literally refers to unredeemed people. People who may have heard of this Jesus, who may have known a little bit about him, but did not come to a place of repentance and trust in this Jesus. And then he goes on, and he doesn't pull any punches because he starts, he starts you know, calling out and, and enumerating and listing out and explaining their sins. He, he mentioned jealousy and strife here. And if you read through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, you'll see just a litany of, of sins and immorality that he, he, he's heard about through Chloe's report. Paul didn't fear confrontation. I used to fear confrontation. Um, I, I uh, you know, was a very non-confrontational person because, um, honestly, I mean, who, who wants to be, you know, in confrontations? You know, who wants to be, you know, experiencing the discomfort of confrontation, the unease of confrontation, the potential bad feelings and misunderstanding that can arise when you confront someone, and even the flat-out conflicts that can result um, when, you, when you confront someone. Can anyone re relate? Or, or, or are you all, like, just happy to confront all the time, anywhere, for whatever reason? No, I, I think... Some of us, you know, perhaps may need to pull back on the confrontation at times. There's just one or two of you or three of you here um, who, are, who are kind of there, and I'm, I'm sorry for not speaking to that right now, but most of us, we avoid confrontation because it can get bad, it can get ugly, and sometimes really quick. You confront someone about something, and it's usually, you know, about something that they don't want exposed or, or acknowledged, let alone, you know, being confronted with, and you do so with the best intentions, with the right motivations, especially as Christian 
follow, you know, believers, disciples. We do it out of our love for that person, out of our desire to, to, to be you know, glorifying God. But what happens when that person is thrown by your confrontation? It becomes awkward at best and, and then perhaps unappreciated. And, and, and then, you know, it, it just kind of like snowballs into... Uh, defensiveness, not only on their part, but on your part. I used to struggle with confrontation because in my flesh, um, I can be a very lazy person. I could be a very uncaring, indifferent uh, soul. And if I let myself go, I will quickly drift in that direction. And I think many of us um, understand what I'm getting at. But I've seen too many times where God has worked and used confrontation to bring about um, powerful, powerful um, change and growth in, in, in his people. I've seen where the time and the energy and the efforts and even the mistakes that were made, right, in confronting one another in love, I've seen how it's resulted in, like, just amazing spiritual eureka moments in the life of um, fellow believers, in the life of the church. Um, I, we experienced such a, um, a moment uh, back when I was serving at this church um, at my alma mater. I went to Rutgers University, and I was working with a bunch of college students, and there was a, a gal who was a faithful, godly sister who was um, just about to um, graduate with her Pharma, uh, her doctorate in pharmacy, and she was just uh, faithful. She was, um, you know, sweet. She was beautiful inside and out, and um, she was also just very anxious about finding a husband. She was a little more kind of, she was a Korean-American gal, a little bit more kind of in touch with the Korean side of her cultural kind of upbringing, and back in the day, uh, it's changed a lot. The, the rate at which, um, you know, Asian, East Asian society is changing is, is um, alarming and, and kind of encouraging as well. But anyhow, the, back, back in the day, um, in the early 2000s, if you were a woman um, and you were, you know, nearing the age of 25 and you weren't yet married, I mean, you were considered an old maid in, in that society, in that culture. And so she brought that. It was a lot of that in her mindset, in her, in her uh, life. And so she was just getting very anxious about um, finding that, that one uh, that she could call her husband who would love her and, and marry her and, and she'd spend the rest of her life with. Well, there was a guy who started pursuing her. Um, he, was, um, he was a guy I knew, and he was very accomplished. Um, he was uh, pursuing his master's of uh, business administration at, at Wharton. He um, was a, you know, a good-looking guy. Uh, he, he was athletic. He was musical. I mean, he was like, you know, um, a mother's dream, right, I guess. He was, he was her dream guy. And, um, but there was one small problem, and it was a very big, small problem. He was not a follower of Christ. So she, to her credit, brought this, you know, kind of situation to seven or eight of her close sisters in Christ. She was knit into the community, and that was wonderful. She brought it to these sisters, and they knew. They knew where she was. They knew that she was longing for this, that she was, you know, prioritizing in her life. 
And they all just kind of gave her the stamp of approval. Oh, my goodness, what, what answered prayer? You know, like, where are you going to find a catch like this? Where are you going to find a guy like this? And they all just said, go for it, go for it, Susie, go for it, go for it. She came to my wife and me, and I, did, I didn't do any of the talking. It was actually my wife, Diane, who did most of the talking. And she just, you know, presented this person and said, what do you think I should do? Should I, you know, should I, you know, dive, you know, did I go all in on this relationship or should I take it slow? And, and my wife basically said, well, let's see what the scriptures confront us with. The truth of, you know, what it means to be yoked, yoked unequally with someone in a relationship that just so happens to form the illustration, right, the metaphor for our relationship with Jesus Christ, right, marriage. Uh, because that's what you're pursuing, right? Yes, yes, Diane. Well, this is what God has to say. Uh, I'm not trying to be confrontational, but this is what you have to work with. And um, honestly, I'm not saying you shouldn't become friends with this guy, but take it real slow. Definitely don't get into a relationship. Guess what happened? She dove right in. And um, for nine months, she dated this guy, and he dropped her like a bad habit one day. And she was heartbroken, and she experienced a lot of uh, hurt, obviously, and uh, she, she went all in emotionally, um, physically, intimately, and even spiritually because she realized that she was, you know, worshiping not only the idea of a husband, but she was worshiping this, this man and even herself. And I, I recall, um, you know, after just shepherding her through this heartache and through all the pain and, and even the consequences of being in that kind of relationship, um, weeks later, she, she came to us, and she was in tears, and we were thinking, oh, we just need to minister to her. We just need to comfort her. I mean, she's been through so much. And it, were, it was actually tears of joy, tears of gratitude, as she just said to my wife. Um, she said, Diane, you were the only one. You were the only one to give me the harder truths that I needed to hear that I needed to walk in, and I didn't, but I just want to thank you for doing that. Paul didn't fear confrontation with a church that he'd planted, a church that he loved, a church that he felt uh, accountable to. Paul was not a perfect shepherd. He was not Jesus, right? Paul struggled with fear of man, with seeking the approval of the saints of this church and the people of, of that area. Paul struggled with um, not understanding his own actions. If you read, um, you know, there's an incredible Romans chapter 8, but if you read of Romans 7, you hear about the intense struggles of Paul where he says, I don't understand myself. I don't understand my actions. I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He was a very fallen person, and yet he was saved by Christ, and he was used by Christ, and he was used by Christ to bring this hard work of rebuke to this infantile church. Do you fear confrontation? And I'm not just talking about giving it, I'm also talking about receiving it, of course. Do you? Do you feel when the, the, you know, the, the barometer of discomfort and uneasiness, right, and um, 
you know, um, calling out of sin and, and raising the bar of accountability, when that happens, do you feel like people are coming at you, that they're attacking you, or knowing the love of God and knowing the means of grace that he has provided for you, do you remember as you rehearse his goodness and his love and his gospel that these people who are confronting you are not attacking you, they're not going at you, they are actually for you, for your growth and for your maturity. That, That was the case with Paul. That was his motivation and his intention. He was for their growth. He was for their maturity. He didn't fear confrontation, both giving it and receiving it. The question I want to ask before I move on to the next point is there's someone in your life that needs to be confronted, maybe here in this room, right? Let's take five minutes and let's, let's do that. I'm just kidding, right? We're not going to do that, all right? <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Um, but at the very least, can I propose this? Will you bring it to the Lord in prayer? Will you seek God's wisdom, God's heart on it? Will you bring it to the Word and, 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 and you know, kind of test it through Scripture, right? Be a good Berean and seek discernment in that way? Will you receive counsel from someone who's spiritually mature, from a leader or just a fellow brother or sister, without making it, you know, even inadvertently a gossip session or a, a time of slandering someone else's character? Welcome it. Invite it. Provide spaces for it in your life. And at the same time, acknowledge and just know up front that it's not always going to be, it's not always going to be easy. That's, you know, that's... Uh, it's going to be hard at times. It's going to take a lot of practice. It's going to take a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of humility, but also a lot of boldness. Don't fear confrontation. The risk is high for sure, but the benefits and the blessings are invaluable and they're worth every moment of it. All right? Point two the problem wasn't identity, but maturity. The problem wasn't identity, but maturity. Point one was about what Paul does. Point two is about what Paul says. He confronts the Corinthians in this letter, and he basically says, you know, you're babies. You're babies um, spiritually. And what he's doing, he's going to the underlying issue beneath the manifold issues that were reported to him, that were present in the church of Corinth, right? The underlying issue was, and I mentioned it a couple times already, they were acting like spiritual infants, spiritual infants. Um, I, had, I just preached this message to Doxa at 2 o'clock, and there were a couple of um, infants, you know, with us, uh, Caleb and Maddie. They're cute as can be. I love babies. Um, whether they're mine or someone else's, I, I, I just love kids, right? Um, I love it when they coo and when they smile, right? When they, um, when they utter their first words, whether it's mommy or daddy or amma, appa, right? That's um, kind of like the, the Korean kind of um, words for mom and dad. Um, it, it just melts me, right? Because babies are incredibly precious. They're incredibly cute. Um, even when they do... Um, you know, not so pleasant things like soil their diapers or cry. And um, I just think it's cute because that's what you expect from babies, from infants. Um, 
But let's get this straight. When babies do those things, it's cute. When adults act like babies, it's not cute. It's kind of ugly, right? It, it's, it's, it's just, you know, there's something incongruous when, a, when an adult, a full-grown adult, is acting and speaking like a baby. And that's what Paul is calling out in this passage. And he has every right to do so because he had proven his love and his devotion to them. Again, four or five years removed from this, the writing of this letter, Paul was instrumental in seeing so many of these Corinthian believers come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He nourished them with, appropriately, spiritual milk, not solid food, right? Because they couldn't take it as babes in Christ four or five years ago, but you have all these baby Christians and they're being nourished and nurtured by the gospel through, through the care of brothers and sisters in Christ, the leaders, and a church is birthed. A church was birthed. Well, he's coming back and he's writing to them and he's saying, it's been four or five years and you haven't grown much. That's a problem. It's a problem. But you know what? I know it's not about who you are, your identity. I know it's about your maturity. Your maturity. You're still eating, drinking spiritual milk. You still want to be nursed at your mother's breast. You still want to be drinking that formula that is not going to grow you, that's going to result in a severe lack of development and health. If it's not hitting home for you all, think about this. Um, I, um, Param's not here because he's always serving downstairs, uh, at least from the times that I've been here, but I went out with Param um, about a year ago to, um, have you guys ever done Hot Pot? Yeah, it's really good, right? <laughs> There's a place in Flushing, in downtown Flushing, called Spring Shabu, and we went out there and we were enjoying just this feast, right? And I recall we, you know, we, we, we chose our soup base and um, then we you know, got some meats and some veggies and some other fixins. Well, um, imagine during that meal if um, I had not touched any of the meats or the veggies or even my soup and not really just eaten any of that, but as he was eating and you know, feasting and gorging himself, if I pulled out a, a bottle of formula and just started drinking that formula, <laughs> and then carrying on conversation with Param and drinking that formula. And then maybe later on, pulling out a little Gerber's, you know, like, um, um, you know, apple sauce, right? It's pretty good, actually. <laughs> so I'm sure you fathers have snuck, you know, a taste here and there or, you know, butter, butter, butternut squash or something. Uh, it's, it's, it's delicious. But if I had been doing that during that lunch with Param, he, he probably would have thought this guy has some issues going on in his life and he's not going to be very healthy if he continues in that vein. That's what Paul is calling out. And that's what some of us perhaps here today are struggling with. We are still in a very kind of, and by, I don't mean to be throwing any shade on the disciple that Jesus loved or the verse John three sixteen. You know, I love it when, I, when the field goal kicker is about to go for that field goal, that extra point, and you see that, you know, that banner that John... 316 poster. It's, it's wonderful. What a gospel. It's, it's a gospel in one verse. But if, you're, if, if that's where you're at four or five or ten years into your walk with Jesus, 
you're still at that John 3.16 devotional life and understanding, and you're, you're lacking in, in a, a depth that you should have, I think Paul would call you out. I think Paul would call you out about being a little too picky about the good, solid, spiritual food that you've had at your disposal. You know, we have a, just a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to how we can grow and resources that we can use to, to grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. An embarrassment of riches, right? There, there are um, people groups and languages that have, that have yet to have the Bible translated in their tongue. And yet we have this embarrassment and this church, believe it or not, despite it being in Sin City, Corinth, they had an embarrassment of riches. And Paul kind of cites one specific area where they were too picky and therefore acting like spiritual babies about the good food that they had, or at least the people that could bring them good nourishment. In verse 4 and 5, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human, being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he, he actually touched upon this earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, where he talks about the report he's received from Chloe's people. He says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's happening here? These people are being just very factional and fractious as well. They're dividing and then they're fighting. They're infighting. And they're doing it over who their spiritual kind of leader is. Right? You had the, the great apostle Paul, and he was you know, a little older, perhaps. He was, he was the, the deep theological guy who was a little more, you know, um, um, fatherly, perhaps, and um, he was a, a, maybe a, a bit more removed relationally. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. But he had his personality and style of preaching, and some Bible scholars think that Paul was actually not that dynamic of a preacher. I'm not sure if that was true. This is their kind of opinion, and they point to Acts 20 where Paul was preaching, and he preached well into like the night, and a guy named, a young guy named Eutychus fell out from the third story, died, and Paul raised him to life. Uh, they, they say based upon that, maybe he wasn't so dynamic. Maybe he was actually quite dry and boring. Who knows? But some people really preferred that. And then there were others who liked Apollos. Who was Apollos? Apollos was the guy that was raised up by Paul and put into leadership when he had to go to Ephesus. Apollos was probably younger. Maybe he was, you know, just better in touch with the millennials and the Gen Z folk, right? And so his illustrations were a little more uh, relevant and riveting, and, um, you know, he, he just preached fire. So a lot of people were like, oh, we follow Apollos. And then there were others who followed Peter. I mean, you can't go wrong with Peter. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was engaged with Jesus himself in public ministry for three years, he had a lot of street cred, so to speak. And then you had the Jesus group. And of course, we know that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. But they weren't 
the genuine Jesus people. They were the arrogant Jesus people. They were the type who brought out the Jesus card whenever they could and said, the Holy Spirit has told me that we need to be following Jesus. Paul is looking and hearing about this and saying, you're all babies, you're all infants, and this just shows, that this proves that you need to grow up, and that growing up starts by you eating solid food and not being so picky about all the good food that you have here at your disposal. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're a little too picky. Maybe you're a little too... um, you elevate your preferences too much. Maybe, you know, you hear it from, and pastors often will share this. Sometimes we'll preach a word to the churches that we love, that we shepherd, that we um, are called to um, oversee. And for whatever reason, you know, the word, the truth, the gospel won't really hit home, but someone else comes into the pulpit, speaks that same message with the same principles and the same truths, and it's just like, oh, eureka, you know, like, this is just amazing stuff, right? Are, are you there? Where, you know, for whatever reason, like, I love Jonathan, I love Param, whoever else preaches here, but I need, to be, I need it for it to be confirmed by someone else before I'll take it to heart and apply it to life. Are you there? Maybe, you're there? Maybe you've got like a queue of podcast preachers, you know? You've got your, I don't know. Um, I like listening to Alistair Begg. I like listening to Tony Evans. I like listening to Tim, Tim Keller. I like listening to Paul Washer. Maybe you listen to all four of those guys, and you've got your queue, and you're faithful. And I'm, by no means am I saying don't listen to podcast preaching. Oh, my goodness. Again, we have a wealth of resources. But if that's all you're doing... And in fact, if you're submitting yourself more to the teaching of people who are godly, powerful, effective preachers, but who don't know you over the preaching and the shepherding of your own shepherds, I think you're acting kind of infantile. I've been there and I've done it. Where are you there? It got to the point that they were so picky and so preferential that they became contentious and divisive. It was bad news. It was real bad news for this church. It was affecting their witness. I mean, their sexual immorality, I mean, like rumors went around the city, like those Corinthians in that church. Wow, we need to join that church because they're, they're a special kind of immoral and deviant. Really, that's what, that's what the commentators tell us. You know, um, everyone, I don't want to say everyone knows who Tim Keller is, but a lot of Christians, especially in this metro, know who the former pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian, he's um, suffering with cancer right now. He's going through some treatment, so we should be praying for him. But there was uh, this uh, Tim Keller phenomena. I don't know if you knew about it. I, I went there um, just to hear Tim Keller, <laughs> to do what I said we shouldn't be doing in all the wrong ways. But there was, uh, as Redeemer was growing at some point in its history, he's no longer the senior pastor there, but he leads the church planting, kind of like the, um, the leadership development efforts of the ministry. Uh, and he's a, a, you know, a prolific author. Um, when people knew that Tim, Dr. Keller, was preaching at a certain location and at a certain time, attendance just skyrocketed. And it got to the point that people were just flocking to hear Tim, uh, that uh, the other services were 
know, left unattended, right, or were very sparse, and it caused problems with children's ministry, and it just caused a lot of problems, and it caused a lot of division as well, because people were like, you know, this is not good, this is not healthy, you know, we can't have all, and it was a lot of visitors, right, but also members who just flocked and, you know, prevented churches for both believers and non-believers, I believe, right? It's for edification and evangelism and witness, okay? But it just caused a lot of problems because people were coming to hear Tim rather than to come and hear from Jesus when they could have heard it from another preacher and another pastor who was faithful and effective. Are you finding yourself in this place where you're too picky about the good food that God has offered, has has blessed you with? Or maybe you're, you're not picky enough about the bad food that's out there. You know, my little guy, he's 10 years old, Jordan. And if he had his way, he'd, he'd be living on cotton candy, uh, ramen noodles, um, peach snapple, and um, yeah, steak. <laughs> that would be, you know, his daily and just weekly and monthly sustenance. Some of that stuff is good. Some of the stuff's not so good. But if that's all that he's stuck on and, and, and eating and, and putting into his body, it's not going to be very healthy. Sometimes we're not picky enough about bad food or even good food, and, and our meals are becoming unbalanced with too much perhaps red meat or too much white meat or perhaps too much seafood. The, 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 the Corinthians were not picky about the bad food that was being offered, and that's why they struggled with not understanding the purpose of spiritual gifts and and making it like a a battle between who had the most prominent gifts to display to the church and the watching world. The Corinthians were confused about legalism and license. Some of them were in this very, like they were locked into this, we got to serve God and we have to earn his favor and his, his merit and, and only then will God be pleased enough to grant us grace and salvation. I mean, that's, that's legalism, right? You, you, you do what you can to merit for yourself the pleasure and the kindness and the love of God. That's not the gospel. But there were other Corinthians who were stuck on the opposite, the polar and the polar opposite end of this spectrum, and they were, they were embroiled in licentiousness, where it was a, I've been freed, uh, I've been saved by grace, I'm sustained by grace, I'm freed by grace in Christ to do as I please, where I please, how I please. So they went on this just like, just this, this freed in Christ life of ultimately immorality. Now, because they weren't balanced, because they weren't eating a healthy diet of spiritual, solid food, they didn't understand that there was another way. They didn't understand, as Dallas Willard puts it, grace, God's grace, is not opposed to effort, actually. We should be striving and seeking to obey and following hard after God and taking up our cross Right? and following after, following after Christ hard and faithfully, but it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. They didn't understand this. All they knew was freedom in Christ in a warped, distorted manner, legalism, 
They had this understanding of, you know, um, health and wealth being the measure through which our faithfulness was evident. Or they were on the other side, where it was, if I'm not, if I'm not you know, experiencing a very austere, stoic, unpleasurable life, right? It's the poverty gospel. Then God is not pleased and happy. This, they were all over the place because they were spiritual infants. And Paul was loving enough to bring to them the truth that it wasn't about their identity. Because if we were to read this letter from chapter one, we would see how Paul, what does he do? He greets them in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives thanks to God for them. And you know what he does over and over and over again? He calls them the church, the church. You are the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You are God's building. You are God's city on a hill. You are God's people, his covenant people. You were called to freedom. This is Galatians 5.13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, this is 524 in Galatians, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, right? There's an active obedience, a call to obedience here for those who belong to Christ Jesus, who are called to freedom through Jesus Christ. But we see these Corinthian Christians, I mean, you know, if you had to, if you listed all the Ten Commandments, they had every box marked off. They were breaking those Ten Commandments. They were embroiled and ensnared in the works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. They, they were acing these Works of the flesh. It was a sad situation in Corinth. Um, this guy in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, he was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was tolerating it. They did not call out the sin. They did not cast him out for the sake of not excising and excommunicating, but for the sake of restoration is what the Bible teaches us. Biblical discipline, right, which is a loving act that we're called to exercise as a church, as God's people, is not for excommunicating. Ultimately, it's for restoration. It's for that person to see his sin or her sin and to receive the grace of God through repentance and to be restored. But they were immature, so much so that they could not see what was happening in their midst. There were people taking each other to court, suing each other over spiritual matters. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost ridiculous what they were doing, but they were doing it and doing it well. The problem wasn't identity, per se, but it was maturity. And point three, the solution is unity. Not uniformity, unity in the gospel. Verses eight and nine, I'm going to reread it. Um, Paul writes, he who plants 
and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. The solution is unity, not uniformity. And Paul would go back to this message of unity again and again and again. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he would speak of the spiritual gifts that they were blessed with, that they were called to identify and cultivate and exercise for the glory of God and for the good, the edification of the church, and for even the, the witness to the watching world. And he lists these spiritual gifts, and he says, uh, don't be uninformed about these things, right? There's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a varieties, a varieties of service, ways that you can serve and, 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 and follow hard after, after the Lord, but one Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And later on, he says in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He says, go back and be unified by the gospel that made you one, one with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but also made you one with your fellow follower of Christ. Go back to that and cherish it and see what God does through the unity that you live out as a church. And in this unity, there is a a variety. There is a diversity of people who have been given different gifts and different callings, who've been given different measures of being used by God. And bring it all together. And don't complain that you're not the hand, right? If you read chapter 12, he says, if you're not the hand and you're a foot, don't complain that, that you're not a hand because... The body needs the feet. If you're an ear but not the eye, if you were not the ear, how would the body be able to hear? Paul is saying, be satisfied. Be content with who you are and how the Lord is using you. And lay aside your preferences. And be united in heart, in spirit, in vision, in mission, and see how the Lord uses you. Don't be spiritual infants. Don't be the spiritual babes that you are. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who can mature you and sanctify you and grow you. You know, he doesn't treat them like babies because if he does, he's just going to prolong their state of immaturity. He calls them out for what they were embroiled in, this sin that was ensnaring them. And he says, this is what you need. This is what you should strive for. And he points them to Jesus. What's the next step for you when it comes to confrontation? When it comes to being reminded of your identity 
and yet also keeping in mind that your identity in Christ is not a static thing. It is static positionally, but not practically, right? Positionally, you are a child of God, and there's nothing that can take you away from God's grip of grace, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like this, and this is God holding on to us, and this is us holding on to God. How many times do we lose our grip on God, and how many times do we try to pull away from God and, you know, try to just wrestle free from his grace, and yet he never lets us go. Never. He can't let us go. I apologize for coming off, you know, at the outset with that question or that, um, that word, but perhaps there is something to that that we also need to hear. I needed to hear it this past week. And uh, if you don't, if you're not in that place where you are just, you know, um, eating well, solid food, and partaking in this feast that God has presented to you, well, then maybe your call, maybe the question you need to be asking yourself is, how can I help those around me feast in this way? How can I slow down and walk with those who are less mature, who are still crawling, who are walking and not running this race with us together? Whatever it might be, where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, um, that uh, although um, the parallels may not be perfectly um, uh, mapped out or laid out or in line with one another, we thank you that we can learn from the Corinthian church and we can glean from their struggles, their hardships, and even the sin and the consequences of their sin and be um, growing, um, addressing things um, proactively seeing where we can be more unified and united in Christ Jesus for your glory, for our good, for the good of our witness. Father, um, thank you that you know each and every one of these brothers and these sisters. You know um, perhaps there are the, some here who are, are wondering who, who you are and, and what this gospel message is all about. Lord, I pray that you would, would speak and um, that you would use the people here to speak and to um, answer, and to perhaps even confront. And uh, most of all, Lord, I pray that, um, that you would unite them, unite them and center them on your gospel, and uh, bring them to the place where um, they will humbly and boldly seek to um, engage in those one another's that you've called them to be engaging in as a church. Lord, thank you for this time as we continue in our worship through giving, through singing, through praying, um, and also being scattered. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are with us and that you empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you.
and we hope to see you soon.